episode of the Fierce Females and History podcast, Stories of Women You Should Know About. I'm Erin. I'm Talissa. And I'm Lucy. Hi. It's such a struggle. <laughs> Anyways, we're here now. We've arrived. Last night while you guys were finishing your notes, um, I was reading your book, My Talissa. book? Yes. Um, Danielle Steele's Spy. That I I also have sitting on my bookshelf at home because I got it from work and you have it and I picked it up and read it and I was like, I only got maybe 10 pages in. But I'm pretty sure that it might have been inspired by this woman. There you go. Today I'm going to tell you about Virginia Hall. And do you guys know who that is? No. Oh, no. she sounds familiar. Well, she is potentially the most effective spy in history. Yes. But we don't know about her. And okay. she was born Classic. April 6, 1906 in Baltimore, Maryland, which made me think of Hairspray. Me too. Um, <laughs> Do you think she sang a Lloyd's School? Good morning, Baltimore. <laughs> no, I don't think that's her vibe. There's a flasher who lives next That's That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to help win World War II. <laughs> <laughs> we got so much stuff to do. <laughs> okay, is this a musical podcast now? I'm ready. Yeah, well, look, she probably would have been all about that. Um, so she's born into a really wealthy family and she's sort of raised to become a, a socialite and hang out with people in her own privileged circle, but she wants adventure. She's not down for that life. She um she's called she's called herself capricious and cantankerous. She loves to hunt and she once went to school wearing a bracelet made of live snakes. What? I don't know how she did it. Cool. That makes me feel ill. But I'm like, how how little are these snakes and how big are your wrists? Because You can get little tiny little pythons yeah so she's she's fully into it um but she's worst nightmare yeah (laughs) but she's super smart she went to radcliffe college which is harvard school for women and then barnard which is the columbia affiliated prestigious women's college so she's just ticking off the ivy league schools yes girl and she studied foreign languages including french german and italian as did uh the character alex from danielle Steele's spy Oh, of course. Linking. I think you've read more than me now. (laughs) I've had the book for three years. I'm pretty Um, sure that's on like the third page. (laughs) I stand by what I said. Um, And so then she goes to Europe to finish off her studies and she travels through Germany, Austria and France in the late 1920s. Now, what do we know about France in the 1920s? It was fun. Pretty Pretty freaking fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And she falls in love. The Moulin Rouge With France. You know, she's kind of come from America where even though America's kind of like, it's in terms of the era, it's still a bit more progressive than other parts of the world. She's come to France and she's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. A lot more freedom in France to let your freak flag fly. Is this Josephine Baker era? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Love it. She wants to be in the diplomatic corps. Um, So she wants to be a diplomat. She wants to be in the foreign service. She wants to... Just, just travel and help America and be that kind of person. And she's known to be charming, charismatic, chariz- charismatic. <laughs> oh, yes, just in Dardenne's back. Very me piece of pep liver. Charismatic, clever, and ambitious, which, you know, great things, but not at that time. Um, not yeah, no, not for time. a woman. <laughs> yeah. And Sit in, down, yeah. Virginia. <laughs> So in 1931, she begins working at the American Embassy in Warsaw, Poland, as a clerk for the consular service. And she's hoping that that's going to lead her into the foreign service. But she's really out of luck. Like, they're, they're really slow at, um, you know, getting onto the fact that women are smart and can do things. Funny that. Because only of the 1,500 US diplomats, only six are women. Wow. They had six? They had six, yeah. That's surprising. So she goes on to land another clerical job in Turkey where things go awry. So during a hunting uh, trip, she trips and shoots herself 
in the foot. Wait, hang on. It, was she climbing over a fence? I don't know. Because I think I saw Drunk History of Virginia Hall. Maybe. Yes. And I only saw a snippet, so yeah. ignore me. Look, some say that she just shoots herself in the foot. Others say that she trips. But um, with a rifle, bam. <sighs> Heavy. It ends up getting infected and needs to be amputated at the knee. Yikes. At the knee? At the knee. Yeah. So want to guess how many people with disabilities made it into the foreign service? Uh, red hot none. Not many. Not many. Um, but she gets a wooden leg and she names it Cuthbert. <laughs> yeah. Now, in 1940, as World War II spreads across Europe, Hall is in Paris. She's been rejected from the Foreign Service because she's a woman and she's disabled. Now, on that term, so I know there's a few different ways to talk about people with disabilities. You can mm-hmm. say disabled, people with disabilities. At the time, I think they would have said disabled. And I'm also going to go with that language because a lot of the people that I follow in this sphere say that they prefer disabled to people with disabilities because they prefer that term because they believe they are disabled by society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're not. No, they're not yeah, and it's it's the society first language. I'm not entirely sure that that's it, but they're saying the disability isn't me; it's society. But I am disabled by society, not kind of being accessible to me. Did I explain that well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But I think it comes down to what t- context you're speaking yeah. in, and also how the person identifies. Yeah. Too. So unfortunately, I couldn't ask Virginia if she'd prefer to be called a person with a disability or a disabled person. But I'm going to go with disabled, and I'm really sorry if if that's the wrong thing. But I think I'm okay. So she has been rejected from the foreign service, but she's joined the ambulance service to help in the French war effort because she really loves France. Like it. She kind of feels like it's given her her first taste of freedom back from Mm -hmm. when she was there in the 1920s. And she's literally shipping injured soldiers away from the front line with enemy aircraft not too far away. So she's already pretty gutsy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she's in Vichy when France falls to the Nazis that year. And she's, she's able to leave France and get to London. But on the way, she has a chance meeting with someone at a train station in Spain who knows, a friend. So he, he starts talking to her and he realises that she's quite, um, she's incredibly sharp. Is this someone, ambitious. a specific someone or just a random well, spy I, someone? Well, I think that there was a name, but do you know what? There's so many names in this that I tried to keep it only to the names that were I necessary to, under- Bond, to understand James Bond. the story. Um, he wishes. But he knows a friend in London who helps, who he Sorry. says, he says I, know, I have a friend in London who can help you get work, basically. Right. Gotcha. And she's like, okay, cool. And then she goes to London and the friend works in the Special Operations Executive, the SOE. And that's the British Espionage Organisation. And it's been set up by Winston Churchill to set Europe ablaze through like a, a crazy amount of spying, sabotage, subversion. Like mm-hmm. they're really, they're going to go hard mm-hmm. and they're going to find out everything and they're going to just let everything unravel for the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's the plan. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't been working for them. They've been trying to implant agents in France, but they're male, able-bodied, non-disabled agents. Just they're not—they're not cutting it. They're—they're no. they're too obviously, Sus. yeah, yeah. Which is, and it kind of got me dolls. thinking about you know when you're reading or watching movies and they've got the spy is always this kind of glamorous, sexy, sexy mm. you know, desirable person, mm-hmm. and it's like no, you you'd want someone who no one notices. That's exactly. why Melissa McCarthy's movie Spy yeah. is so great. <laughs> Um, I'd like to recommend it um, because she does not fit the mould of your typical spy. It's not the Gal Gadot type. It's Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. yeah. So. 
Because who would forget? Who who could forget Gal Gadot? I mean, and Melissa McCarthy. You wouldn't really like, in her own right. Hilarious, but, but Gal Gadot is like a Miss World. Yeah, li- literally. You wouldn't forget seeing her. No, you wouldn't forget. You don't want to be memorable. No, exactly right. But and in that's the same why I can't way, be a spy. Too beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that's a problem we all share. Yeah. Oh, oh don't you hate it when you're too beautiful to do espionage? <laughs> <laughs> it's my my crust to bear. Uh, you guys knew who I really was. <laughs> this is great. Turning heads wherever we go. <laughs> but who would suspect a one-legged American female? That's what they thought. Now, so she gets she gets taken in by the SOE, mm-hmm. and she learns clandestine tradecraft, hand-to-hand combat, canoeing, map reading, Morse code, bomber signalling, operational planning, signaling. and operational. Yeah, when you like wiggle a bit. <laughs> <laughs> How does operational sound like bum? No, no, before that, bumble signalling. You said bum signalling. A bomber signalling. Oh, bomber! I think you said bum signalling. <laughs> That's fine. So she learns all of that, and during the training, all but one other woman fails and she's the only female graduate of her class and she becomes the first British female agent inserted into France with the code name Germain. 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 <laughs> now in nineteen forty one she goes undercover in Vichy and she pretends to be a reporter for the New York Post and she starts coordinating activities within the French resistance. And as a journalist what she could do is she could hide um intelligence in her reported stories, which was cool. Oh. <gasps> yeah. That's so really like cool. little codes within the stories. Like she be Oh, that's clever. That's very yeah. cool. And look, just just to get on to the why she did it cuz she's she's American and she's going undercover for like France, France. and England. Mm. Yeah. But there's a woman Sonia Purnell who wrote a book about her called A Woman of No Importance and she told the Smithsonian Magazine in an interview that um she was only 20 when she came to to France and her home life had been quite restrictive and there she was in Paris the great literary, artistic and cultural flowering during that time, jazz clubs, the society, the intellectuals, the freedoms, the emancipation of women. This is quite heady. It's quite intoxicating. It really opened her eyes, made her feel thrilled and stretched and inspired. That sort of thing in your 20s when you're very impressionable, I don't think you ever forget it. And that's what she said. So she's she's quite dedicated to France. That when Virginia got sent there, her supervisors weren't that hopeful about her prospects. They thought that she wouldn't really last more than a few days in a region full of Gestapo agents. But she proves them wrong. She goes so far beyond her brief of collecting intelligence. She literally establishes a network. So they just wanted to find things out and just send it back to her, back to um, the SOE in, Mm. in the UK. But she establishes a network and she names hers Heckler, which I think is cool. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah. And she ultimately makes Leon the hub of um, the underground resistance activity in the French Free Zone. So she organises agent networks, she assists escaped prisoners of wars and she recruits French men and women to run safe houses to um, help those guys who are the prisoners of wars. And she becomes friends with a female brothel owner and gets information that the French sex workers gather from the German troops. Of course. This is what I was going to say to you, you know, the most discreet people, and they were always females a lot of the time. Everyone underestimates them. They're like, oh, they don't even know how to listen. Mm -hmm. Like, Remember the Honey Shaft and the yeah. Overstein sisters? The little 16-year-old girls with plaits in their hair and guns in their baskets? Well, yeah. look, remember Theodora? She had a network of 
sex workers who would help her get information on, you know, mm-hmm. politicians and things at the time. Huge. You're Women. Right. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Very clear connection. Yeah. And sadly, she had to turn away from her chic Parisian wardrobe to become inconspicuous. And she often had to quickly change her appearance through makeup and disguise. People say that in one day she could change the way she looked four times. Cool. Yeah. And she also had to take these um, SOE-supplied Benzedrine pills to stay alert and awake um, because sometimes she would need to be up all night or for days at a time. Uh, Do you know what they are? I think they're like MDMA. Maybe. But she said it's that probably towards like the end of the work. It is. Speed or something. Yeah. She, Hitler she was always to find on speed. Insomnia was a really big side, side effect for her because she was taking these pills. It's, all an, time. it's an amphetamine. Wow. It's literally like a party drug now. And they like. Woohoo! They took it like just to do their job. Yeah. <laughs> the Stay jaws have been like swinging. Uh, yeah. <laughs> literally just trying to get through the day. <laughs> the pupils were like six times bigger than they should have been. No one questioned it. No one bad yeah. that <laughs> Crazy. Cra- History is mad sometimes, I know, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And she also carried cyanide pills with her. Well, yes. yes. Every good spy does. Yes. <laughs> Are you I a spy? And <laughs> <laughs> look, few people suspect her. They just they don't really think that she's she she's a spy, but she's very effective. And in 1942, she works along Peter Churchill, who is another well-known spy, to deliver money and agents to the French spy networks. And she's very very good at her job. Because she's good at keeping her mouth shut and she's highly paranoid. Like she just, she's cautious of everything. And some people think that that might be why we, why, why her story hasn't really been told in that big way. Because she's quoted as saying, many of my friends were killed for talking too much. Yeah. Yeah. So she's drilled on into you. drugs, being hella paranoid, <laughs> but also killing it as a spy. Yeah. She's cool. Okay. That's stressful. That's a lot. But, you know, it is drilled into you not to say anything. It is. So what, why would you all of a sudden be like, oh, my God, guys, I have a great she's story. she's on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> the drugs that make you talk heaps are the ones the annoying people at the clubs take. These are the <laughs> drugs that I'm talking about. But the, the historian for the SOE says the motto for every successful secret agent was dubito ergo sum. I doubt, therefore I survive. So she's very Ooh. cautious. And she she follows that to the uh, to the letter. My anxiety must be a spy then. <laughs> because, um, <laughs> I've done everything. I've done everything. <laughs> Do they like me? <laughs> Tell me I'm pretty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in October 1941, she senses danger, and there she decides not to attend a meeting of SOE agents in Marseille, which the French police end up raiding, and they capture a dozen agents. And she's also she, and she's not afraid to to tell her bosses when when she thinks something's up. So she avoided contact with another agent sent to Leon named Georges Duboudin, I think, and um, she refused to introduce him to any of her contacts because she thinks he's lax in insecurity. And her SOE headquarters tell her that she needs he needs to supervise her and she tells them to lay off. Fair. Yeah. Now, she finds out that those 12 agents who are arrested at that meeting are in a prison... Um, it's the Malzac prison, and she decides to free them. So on a communication with, with the SOE over it, she says, if they cannot come out officially, they'll come out unofficially, which is cool. And this is how she does it. it this, is, this has been considered one of the great prison escapes of mm. all time, and one of the greatest ones in, in wartime too. So there's um, one of the people who is inside smuggles out letters to haul from the prison, and she recruits Gabby Bloch. She's the wife of another prisoner, um, Jean-Pierre Bloch, uh, as an ally to plan the escape. Now, the wife, Gabby, 
visits the prison frequently to bring food and other items to her husband, including sardines. And she smuggles tools in within the sardine tins that they use to make a key out of the door of the barracks where the prisoners were kept. Now, they made the key from a mould, a bread mould. So I imagine that they stuck bread into the hole and then prisoners would all sing loudly while they fashioned the key to cover any sounds. And um, Bloch, Gabby, also recruited... So Bloch had a big part to play in this. Yeah. She's, she's the one who's doing all of the actual... Um, Virginia is kind of masterminding it. Yeah. But because she's quite... She's reasonably well-known by then that she can't go into the prison. Fair. So she needs Gabby to do all of this. Very brave of Gabby. Yeah. Well, it's her husband inside there. And do you know what? Some say that the um, the escape was... That Virginia was the one who initiated it. But then there's other people who say it was Gabby and she went to Virginia yeah, and asked right. her That's to cool. help. Yeah. So I think that there's – it could be either, either way, way. Women, helping yeah. women. Mm-hmm. Helping men. <laughs> because they got themselves into trouble. Yeah, yeah of course. Okay. And Bloch also recruits guards to the cause. So, right. Because, I mean, they're French, you know, and I guess they're still not – like they're technically – it's a German occupied, but it probably wouldn't be as hard as it might be in other times to recruit yeah. guards to your cause. Right. Totally. Um, so Hall assembles safe houses, helpers, vehicles. She gets a priest to smuggle in a radio to um, to the prisoners from within his wheelchair. And um, from within the prison, they begin transmitting to London. Wow. Now, on July the 15th, 1942, um, Gabby and Virginia have arranged a friendly guard to help them get get the prisoners out. And he's got another guard who is going to climb Watchtower 7. And light a cigarette, which would be the all-clear signal for the men to move. However, he doesn't appear. And I think that maybe he's scared of the prisoners are forced to wait and wait and wait. And at this stage, they've tried the key and the first key didn't work. And so they've had to quickly fashion another key to get them out. So they've kind of gotten out and they're waiting to escape. But the guard doesn't show. So at 3 a.m., another guard... Well, the, the original guard, because he got his friend to do it and then the friend didn't show up and he's like, oh, crap, where is he? So he climbs up, he lights his, he lights the pipe and this time the key turns in the lock and the men run to the fence where they use a string from behind the wire to um, send signals. And one tug means all clear to go and three short tugs, I'm kind of gesticulating yeah, while we do it. Watching you do it. Yeah, signals danger. Now there's another friendly guard on patrol who warns them to be quiet before turning a blind eye to the 12 men wriggling under the wire. And so within 12 minutes, 12 men have escaped. And they hide in the woods while, an, while a super big manhunt takes place. Um, and then they all meet up with Hall in Leon. And she's all very All 12 clever. of them got out. All 12. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Does Gabby's husband get yeah. out? Yeah, all 12. They Mind all you, out. they didn't have helicopters back then to help try and find them. <laughs> no, but like they had them. Um, still impressive though. Yeah. Tw- trusting 12 people as well. Yeah. And she starts a rumour, um, Virginia, that they've escaped to England, which is clever because it kind of makes everyone, all of the people who are hunting them, lose heart a little bit. They're like, oh, they're already in England. Like, yeah. Right. And they don't continue with the same intensity that they may have. And they actually stayed quite close during the first stage when it was really intense. But um, yeah, they all get, they smuggle to Spain and then back to England. And um, the uh, the official historian of the SOE, someone who's called M.R.D. Foote, I don't know what their name is. <laughs> M.R.D. Foote. Yeah, Mr. Foote, called the escape one of the war's most useful operations of its kind. Um, and several of the escapees later returned to France and um, they became leaders within 
the the networks. Wow. So yeah, so she's very she's very effective, but her limp is getting harder to hide. She's becoming more and more distinctive. She changes disguises constantly, as I said, but but it's still she eventually becomes known as the limping lady throughout the region, which isn't a very imaginative nickname. No, but it's descriptive alliteration. Yep, and it's easier to pick her out. Yep, and she's quickly named the most wanted in 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 the area. She's enemy of the state, wanted criminal. Yep, the whole shebang. Yep. Now she has this guy known as the Butcher of Leon hot on her case. He's Gestapo chief of the region, Nicholas Klaus Barbie. The Nazis think at the time that Hall was Canadian and Barbie reportedly tells his the people that answer to him, I'd give anything to lay my hands on that Canadian bitch. Whoa. Now this guy is awful. He is responsible for the execution or murder of over 4,000 people and for the deportation of 7,500 Jews, most of whom perished in Auschwitz. So he's... Oh, Jesus. He's like a full-on... He's the main... He's a villain. The main. I was about to say, he's the main antagonist of this film. Yeah. Uh, he's put up signs of Hall everywhere that have a, a drawing of her, of her above the words, the enemy's most dangerous spy. We must find and destroy her. But she is a clever little fox. So the Germans are advancing down through France because they want to take um, North Africa and she's like oh I've got to get out of here yeah this is not I can't be here when when they when they get to where I am Mm -hmm. yeah and she slips aboard a train and hikes through the Pyrenees to make it to Spain now that's one little sentence but it is so so much (laughs) okay so it's November 1942 so it's it's cold right do you want to quickly pull up a picture of the Pyrenees Google Pyrenees Google Pyrenees. Can we have a spelling? P Y P Y R E P Y R E N W E S. Oh, it's like <laughs> mountain ranges. It is super snow covered. Yeah. Holy dooly. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's intense. It's intense. People go skiing there. And remember, so <laughs> November 1942. It's a dog breed. Yeah, I was going to say it's a dog breed. They're very cute. (laughs) Pyrenees mountain dogs. And she has a wooden leg. Now, it's functional enough for basic walking, but when we think about the technology at the time and the engineering for these types of prosthetics, Mm -hmm. they weren't weren't that crash hot. And it starts to get pretty cumbersome, cumbersome beyond just, you know, walking down the street. The ankle doesn't really bend as well as a normal ankle does, so going downstairs are really tricky. Right. So how do you reckon you'd go climbing down a mountain range? So oh. she's taking a train out of uh, France into Spain. No, she's climbing over the mountains. I thought you said she got a train. Uh, she slipped aboard a train to the Pyrenees. To the Pyrenees. To she the actual mountain. train to the border. And, and now she she's goes hiking over through. the border. Holy dooly. Yeah, so she can't really... Going downstairs is, is dangerous enough with her with her wooden leg. Let alone a mountain. Let alone a mountain. Let alone these mountains. And it's so fastened steep. it's fastened with leather. So you add in a lot of sweat and chafing to the mix and you're looking at a ton of blisters and like bleeding. It's nasty business. And it's seven pounds, so that's just over three kilograms that you're yanking up with your like she must have strong legs. Yeah. Um Shit. like I mean that's like a really heavy carton of juice you got attached to your knee. That's a baby. That's a newborn yeah. baby. And the Pyrenees is three thousand four hundred and four meters and it takes her three days in heavy snow. It's 80 kilometres or 50 miles. And she's got a guide, but there's reports that the guides would just, if you fell behind, you'd be left behind. Wow. Fair. You know, and there's wolves 
in there and um, there's ravines and Cuthbert, her, her prosthetic, his rivets are coming loose. She carries a rucksack and she hikes up it by dragging her prosthetic leg and using her good right leg as a snowplow, according to this um, biography by Judith Pearson called The Wolves at the Door. And um, at one point during the during the hike, she sends a message to London telling them that Cuthbert is giving her trouble. And they reply saying, if Cuthbert is giving you difficulty, have him eliminated. So they, they don't know that Cuthbert is He's like. a lily. <laughs> He's not a person. And she's like, I can't do that. <laughs> He's literally my limb. Um, oh get rid of it. God. Now later Cut she off. describes Eliminated. this experience to her niece as the worst part of the war, but Aww. she makes it. And there's a, another person who does a biography of her. He's a marathon runner and he tried doing part of the walk and he said it's really, really, really hard. Wow. And she does this. You know, that like, adrenaline, like the Nazis, baby. The Nazis behind her. This, yep. this guy who's murdered thousands is trying to find her. Made her the most wanted enemy yeah. of the state. And she's climbing a mountain. Like, it's full on. So she makes it to Spain. But when she gets to Spain, she's in trouble too because she doesn't have the right entry stamp. And she's thrown in jail for a few weeks. And she befriends a fellow prisoner, a sex worker from Barcelona, who's soon to be released. And she manages she manages to smuggle out a coded letter from Virginia and give it to the American consulate. Mm-hmm. And then they end up helping her <laughs> get free after she shows up without the right entry papers. And she makes back to England. But the SOE doesn't want her to keep working for her, for them because they've got a general rule that agents can only be in the field for about six months. And by this stage, she's been in there for 13 months and she's literally like the most wanted woman. Wow. Wow. So, you know, I, I understand where they're coming from. Yeah. But so for around a year, she works from their base in Madrid and she thinks it's really boring. I think it sounds really cool. But um, <laughs> she, she returns to London where Winston Churchill makes her an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire, which is a really big deal. But she isn't done. So she she's like I'm just I just don't want to work at a desk in Madrid. But yeah, and so she joins the new US organization called the Office of Strategic Services, which is an early incarnation of the CIA. And she asks to go back to France. Now the OSS says, "Okay." And she goes back there under another false identity. But but first she has her teeth filed down so they look more French. What? She literally goes to a dentist and asks them to file down her teeth. I think so that she looks... But what makes them look more French? Well, I, to make them look... Well, a French milkmaid or a French peasant. So someone who wouldn't... Because she, I guess, what? bear in mind that she, she's a wealthy American woman. Right. And she would have the teeth to match. Right. And she wants to look like a poor French milkmaid. Right. And so she literally gets her teeth filed down, which I think is wow. wild. That is crazy. Yeah, because you can't just... You can't just get... You can't really undo that. Dedicated to the job. Yeah. And others say that, well, she wore really wrinkly makeup and she poses a farmhand. And under her new codename, Diana. Funny that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she returns to France with another male agent um, with codename uh, Aramis. And she's disguised as a peasant woman named Marcel Montaigne. So she's got a codename and then she's got her cover name. Wow. There's like a million names. One of the, um, I think a Sonia who wrote her book said it was really tricky <laughs> getting all the information about her because she had about like 20 different names. Yeah, I bet. So, Yeah. Big job. Jesus. And she goes to Brittany and over the course of a year, she maps out safe zones for supply drops and safe houses and works with Operation Jedberg, Jedberg, which is uh, Jedberg operations are just these guerrilla type operations where people kind of parachute in and then just do a lot of damage. And then they yeet out of there. Wow. They yeet out of there. That's so unnatural to you. (laughs) 
I love it. That's what they do. And she soon starts getting really irritated with Aramis. And the thing is that throughout her story, she keeps getting sent over with men and they're like, you're going to answer this man. And she's like... They are terrible at their jobs. Can you can you respect me just just a little bit more because I'm better at my job than these guys are? No one really listens to her, and, and she ends up getting really frustrated. So frustrated, in fact, that at one point she she shakes him off. She ditches him. She's like, "You are. I am better than you at this, and you are uh, you're going to compromise the operation." And then she just like escapes him and tells her cl- contacts, um, "Don't tell him where I've gone." because she thinks he's so bad at his job that she literally ditches her superior commander. Doesn't want anything to do with him. Well, yeah. If only it was that easy. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So in order to get a picture of the German troop movements, she would walk along the side of the road with cattle and sell cheeses to them and have a chat, and nobody suspects this elderly woman, um, and she just listens in on their conversations, and she can, like, pick up, because she speaks German, um, what they're saying, and then she would just, like, radio the intelligence back to... um, London. Very smart. Yeah. And she blows up bridges. She sabotages trains. And um, she tends to, like, get the villagers back from the Germans before the Allies get there. And she's she's reported as as saying that, 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 like, this town was saved by the Allies. And she's like, yeah, well after we secured it using our own networks. Losers. She's busy. She's, she's a very busy woman. <laughs> busy. Um, and so at her peak, uh, she her network consists of 1,500 people, including a French-American soldier called Paul Goyot, who later becomes her husband. And Ooh he's la apparently, la. I think, eight years younger and seven inches smaller because she's she's done too much to be beholden to old-fashioned ideas Good of on her. romance and we gender roles. Love that for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But she really, she really has to fight for respect. So, because she arrives, and even though she has the money, and she has the the technical authority, mm. no one listens to her because she's a woman, and she Classic. has to keep proving to herself by like being like, "Okay, look, I have these weapons for you," and they're like, "Oh, she's got the weapons," or "Look, I've got this this, this money for you," and they're like, "Oh, she's got the money," or "Or I've got these agents for you," and they're like, "Oh, she's got the agents." And then eventually they come, come around, with answers. and then there's some people who say that at first I was like, "Yeah." well, I don't really respect you, but then they end up being her biggest supporters right. and saying she's awesome. Prove yourself. Oh, they could have listened to her from the start. No. Yeah. yeah. No, of course not. So, yeah, so during this two-month period in mid-1944, she sends 37 intelligence reports. She oversees 27 parachute drops of material for the French resistance. She coordinates the efforts of 1,500 resistance fighters. She manages dozens of acts of sabotage and... She integrates a joint SOE-OSS operational team into her operations and she oversees like so many attacks that end up with more than 800 Germans captured and 170 killed. Wow. Yeah. Which is intense. That's very intense. That is so many. Yeah. Very busy woman. Yeah. (laughs) I'm tired just listening to her. Yeah, her story is wild. She she returns to the US and she marries the um, Paul and... They end up both working at the CIA where she becomes an intelligence analyst. And apparently they don't really know what to do with her because she's quite, like, she's a rock star and they just don't really know what to do with that in in the body of a woman. Yes, (laughs) of course. And she's generally overlooked. Like, she gets given a lot of desk desk work and she's just like, I'm so bored. But she's not too, I mean, I think she's disappointed, but she doesn't really talk about it that much. That's the thing. Her whole story is her doing these things and then shirking the spotlight. Like, Mm. I'm... She 
She receives the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the only award given to a woman in World War II from the American president. And Truman wanted to give Hall the award um, in a public ceremony, but she says no because she was worried that the fanfare would reveal too much to the enemy. And the French give her the Croix de Guerre for her work, which is one of their biggest mm. honours. And she's still considered one of the most daring spies in history. And wow. some of the things that that she kind of began doing during the war are still used to this day. Like I think um, Operation Jawbreaker, which was when the Americans went to Afghanistan, they used her tactics to recruit um, local civilians to, I guess, the cause and to get intelligence. So she's... Wow. She's echoing through history with wow. the way that she would set up her her spy networks and. But what what did the jawbreaker entail? I think that's just the name of the operation. Oh, operation right. Jawbreaker. I'm pretty sure. I was, was like, did they break wait, jaws? Wait, let, me, let me check because it it could what be that I'm not sure if Operation Jawbreaker was larger operation or if it was actually just a part of getting people on board. That I feel like one of her biggest skills was making friends or getting people to trust her and her trust them. That she's a very good judge of character. To be able to create those networks, yeah. Yeah. she must have been very quick off the mark, knowing, being able to read people. Yeah. And she's create like the, trust. And, and create trust and create that bond. Yeah. Like the girl in the bathroom, baby. You know the girl in the bathroom? She's your best friend. Yeah. And you share that lifelong when bond. You you'll never bathroom. see her again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's that. that, that every drunk girl in the bathroom is actually a spy. <laughs> yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. So Jawbreaker actually is, it's it was a code name given to the first um, CIA team to enter Afghanistan. Um, also known as the Northern Afghanistan Liaison Team. And um, it was based on their understanding that the key to success would be to use the local anti-Taliban guys and to work with them. Wow. And that was, and she kind of was instrumental in developing that understanding of the role um, local intelligence networks would play. Which, I mean, makes sense now, but obviously she was ahead of her time. Yeah. I just don't know how she kept up with everything. Yeah, I don't know. Without, you know, a, an iPhone planner. Reminders. So true. <laughs> or like, oh, I'll just write that down. Notes in my phone. Notes she must have a really good memory. Yeah. yeah. Very good at what she does. Lots of training. Well, that's her oh, story. That yeah. I always love a good spy story. And I always love when it's someone, you know, a woman that's not really, you know, deemed a threat. But then she is. Yeah. Fierce female stuff. I love it. <laughs> I love it too. And she's going to be made into a movie. Well, she's already been made into a couple, but there's one I think that's coming out in a little bit. I don't know if they started making it, but they're going to get Daisy Ridley to play her. I love Daisy. Oh, I, I do remember reading about this. I wondered that because I just tried to look at the teeth filing down thing <laughs> while you guys were talking. I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what the and it kept coming up with these photos of Daisy Ridley. I was like, what the... That brings us to the end of another episode of Fierce Females of History Podcast. You can hit us up in a couple of places. Yes, online, uh, Instagram at Fierce Females Podcast, Facebook, Fierce Females of History. Please, we've had so many cool people send us messages of suggestions and, and you know, what they think of the podcast. Yeah. And, and there's been some really nice messages from you. So thank you for that. And please keep them coming. We love exactly. it. You can email us as well, Fierce Females of History at gmail.com. See you, girl. <laughs> Lucky I'm not a spy because I cannot even remember our email. <laughs> or you could consider sending us a message, but how well do you really know us? Are you sure you can trust us? Are you sure we haven't been compromised? Remember the, the, the motto of the spy, Jubito, ergo sum. I doubt, therefore I survive. And I'll leave you with that. We hope you survive. <laughs> Until next episode. May the force be with you. <laughs> but also, do you trust the force? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> or your local postal service. But do you trust them? 